Welcome to the Property Nomads podcast. And here is your host, Rob Smallbone. Welcome to the Property Nomads podcast. Uh, today I'm delighted to be joined by John Benson from Benson Planning Studios. In this mini series, we are speaking to very successful people within property, and John is a very successful planning consultant. So, John, uh, thank you very much for your time today. No problem. Planning is such a big area, such a big thing. Uh, but before we dive into that, what got you into dealing <laughs> with that in the first place? When I was at school, I liked geography, um, and then I decided I liked buildings. So I thought, well, let's go and look at human geography. But I thought, well, what can you do with human geography? Then I got the, the UCAS book, the university book, and I saw the word planning um, at the age of 16. Oh, this sounds interesting. And read a bit more into it and then delved into it. I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. I can make a real difference in the future. Um, I like buildings, I like streetscapes, etc. Um, but I was badly advised at my careers um, interview for sixth form. So it left me with A-levels that didn't really um, give me enough grounding into planning, unfortunately. But I did manage to get onto an urban and regional planning course at Leeds Met. Um, I was there for three years and got my degree in 2001. So yeah, 18 years later, <laughs> um, at the age of 38, I'm, I'm still in planning. Um, I got my first job in 2002 as an apprentice at East Riding Council in their satellite office in Bridlington, um, doing household extensions, uh, really, really small stuff. And that, that was a really, really good school. Um, but they didn't re- extend my contract after six months, and that left me in a bit of a wilderness. And then a job came up at Hull City Council uh, in the enforcement team um, as a compliance officer. And I was lucky to have a really, really good manager there. And essentially, I got fast-tracked right through the system. And in 2015, uh, I became one of the planning managers. Um, So it was a bit of a a rocket through the system, working on all kinds of stuff um, in Hull. Um, Obviously, enforcement-related issues, but things from new bills, conservation, industrial, healthcare, um, schools, and lots of conservation as well. But then I had a little bit of an epiphany in... April 2016 and I thought well I've always wanted to do it from the other side but when do I do it and I thought right just do it so I did it and left a really well-paid job um, lots of security and then I walked out of the guild hall and I can see it now and I look back and I thought Christ what have I done <laughs> but I've never looked back I've never ever looked back and it's um, been the best decision ever and you know sat in the sunshine today looking out the river Humber it's fantastic yeah, you might be able to hear the wind in the background thinking about it if you listen to this I say at the time of recording is whatever the storm's called I don't know what it's called Gareth is it Gareth, Gareth now, yeah. so yeah very uh, very blowy um, talking on talking on epiphany moments so mm. when we had one when I was travelling um, you know that, that got me into the idea of going into investing in bricks and mortar in the first place yeah. was there a specific thing for that epiphany moment was it yeah there was because the planning consultants are quite niche there's not a lot of us um it has to be said and as much as i love architects they were taking on the planning consultants role a lot of the time and they were badly advising clients and i was seeing this from the public sector and one of the reasons that made me go on my own was this needed to stop they need someone who actually knows about planning, about rules, about regulations, because planning is constantly evolving. Rules are constantly changing. And while architects can, can do the, the sexiest scheme in the world, their knowledge of planning might be quite basic. And I thought, well, investors, developers, businesses, architects need this level of service. Um, so I sounded out quite a lot of people before I left the council and I said, well, do you need this service? And they were, yeah, we desperately need this service. We're trying to fudge our way through it. We've got no help. Um, and yeah, we, we, we need someone with that knowledge and expertise um, to guide us through the system and make things easy and simplistic without all the hassle and us trying to work out what to do. That's good. So effectively found that niche in the market, yeah. done your sort of area research, or not area research, but your sort of 
behind the scenes research of is this a product or service that you need come back with a consensus of yes it is and you've just cracked on exactly yeah I mean a lot, a lot of them were doing these schemes and they were falling down on, on simple rules I mean every council in the UK has a local plan within that local plan are policies wide-ranging policies and architects um, they don't keep up with things like that and they shouldn't be expected to they've got enough to do but it's our job to advise them simple things like parking standards um, legal agreements bedroom sizes um, all kinds of simple things that they're maybe not fully aware of it's our job to, to, to make them understand that and input that into their schemes in terms of when you would need a planning consultant you know, many people who listen to the podcast might just invest in regular buy-to-let properties and bread sure. and butter stuff. Yeah. When would you need the services of someone like yourself? I think for, for simple things like, you, you know, your, your everyday household extension, your conservatory, your garage, you don't need a planning consultant. Architects are, are familiar enough with things like that. But it's when things get a little bit bigger. So obviously investors who are looking at things like new builds, flats, HMOs, um, they need to be aware of things like space sizes um, and, and each council will, will have specific rules on parking standards, your, your internal space sizes, cupboard sizes, window sizes, things like that, things that I know about because I immerse myself in the respective local plan and it's important that, that they get us on board to work in conjunction with their architect to make sure that the plans are done as per the requirements of the local plan because if you're not meeting those standards it's an immediate refusal of a scheme and it's a justifiable refusal of a scheme as well and some people do the simple things of wanting to convert a loft in a HMO but if your window's not got a decent outlook where you can look at something not just a skylight that will fall down as well and it's usable floor space so it's getting that across to architects how important that is um, but I think I, I think a lot of architects and people who think they know a lot about planning I've had the fingers burnt in the past, so people see the value in getting a consultant on board, telling us this is the building that we've got, this is the piece of land we've got, what can we do, what can we do with this, without speaking to an architect first who may tell them they can get this grandiose scheme, but sometimes the planning consultant can be the voice of reason, the realist in the project, this is what you can actually obtain from something. And that all becomes about because what you're saying is effectively you're gonna know the local plan better than pretty much anyone else out there so you can yeah, advise better. That's exactly right. I mean, it's important to stress as well. I get asked a lot from clients, you just work in Hull. No, I don't work in Hull. I work in Hull. I work in the East Riding. I work in North Lincolnshire. I work in Leeds. I work in the Midlands. And I'm doing a lot in London, in the London boroughs at the moment. So once you've met most local plans, they have the similar content. But then they get little. They get quite specific. So the London boroughs, for instance, they're very, very specific on room sizes and things like that. But it's a little bit more flexible as you as you come out. Um, but yeah, immersing yourself in a local plan—that's my version of a bible, essentially. <laughs> um, knowing what to do and, and where to go for it. Architects and people say to me, "They go, we haven't got the time to do that." It's your job, you know what to do, just do it for us. In terms of, for example, converting a buy-to-let to a HMO, so mm. we've covered recently on, on the podcast, or we will cover, I can't exactly remember when the episode is, um, Article 4, which is, well, you might be able to explain it better than I can. Yeah. What, it, what is Article 4? Well, for a lot of the people who are listening, I was, I, I was one of the people who... Uh, did the Article 4 in Hull back in 2013. Essentially, an Article 4 um, for, for HMOs is, is councils are quite concerned about the lack of uh, family housing in certain areas. There's an over-proliferation of shared houses, predominantly students, and these areas were becoming quite degraded. Students are quite transient. Um, there was bad management practices, things like litter, graffiti, vandalism, um, anti-social behaviour and the councils needed to stamp that out and there was a there was a problem in Hull um, some streets were 80% occupancy with HMOs which is which is astonishing really um, and in the summer when the students left these properties were all empty and there was an increase in spiking crime um, so it's not to say you can't do HMOs 
or flats in, in, Article, in, in Article 4 areas, but they are more heavily restricted. And there tends to be now a, a percentage of no more than 50% of, uh, of units can be in shared accommodation on any particular street. And a lot of those in, in our locality are at that as well. And, and in Leeds, for instance, um, most of those are way, way over that. So there's, there's no real justification for any more. So it's important that I get, I get calls from investors all the time saying we've seen this property in such and such area who aren't familiar with the particular locality, but I immediately inform them as well of, of, of what the, the pitfalls could be if they do embark. So if I've got um, a three bedroom mid-terrace property, a family house, so mm. C3 yeah. classification. Now, if I want to convert that to a six bed HMO, but I'm not in an Article 4 area, then I can just go ahead and do that, is that right? You can, yeah. You can go up to, to a six, it's generally the say six occupants, but six bedrooms is, is, is the, the rule of thumb uh, within local authorities. Once you go above that, it becomes a use class of its own called sui generis. So it's, it's not a use class of any particular kind. Um, and then you would require planning permission. And then you, then you have to look at things like cycle parking standards, car parking standards, etc. So that brings in a whole lot more, um, not difficulties, but things that you need to assess Whereas if you were doing something under the permitted development at, at six beds. Fantastic. And then to just going back, just to clarify it for people that are listening. So go back to that same three bedroom mid-terrace property. Yeah. If I was to then look to convert that to a six bed HMO, but I was in an Article 4 area, I would then need to go through planning permission. You would. I mean, I'll use Hull as an example at the minute within Article 4 areas that they're wanting applications for anything more than three bedrooms, which is quite low. Um, so there's quite a lot of planning apps in at the minute within, within the whole city council article four area for small HMOs, whereas mm. uh, not normally they uh, they would have been fine. And I think it's also important to make people aware who are listening to this as well that a lot of the properties that investors are buying are long-standing HMOs but have never had planning permission. So they're buying them and solicitors are asking for um, decision notices when they get planning. And I think this is really important because a lot of people um, who've come to me, I've had to apply for a certificate of lawfulnesses. Um, so that's an evidence-based exercise. So we get things like um, tenancy agreements, bills, information from council tax um, to show that it's been a HMO longer than the inception of the Article 4. So effectively, once you've finished, assuming everything goes well, you get planning or you're doing it under permitted development, the minute, and again, we're just focusing on HMOs for this, mm. but the minute that's done, it's important to then get a certificate of lawfulness. It is. And how do you go about getting one of them for the benefit of people? It's the same principle as a planning application. Um, you need drawings, but not architectural drawings. It's just a basic floor plan. Um, showing you how the property is subdivided. Space standards and things like that don't come into it. Um, it's just establishing the historical use of it. So for instance, in October 2013, the Article 4 HMO came into Hull. So if there was um, a three, four, five bed HMO that's been in use since before that time, which didn't require planning before the inception of it, the council need to know, is that the case? You could just be telling us that. So for a lot of my clients, we pull together all the evidence. Um, and you can also get things like witness statements. So if you're struggling to get tenancy agreements from people, um, you've got a solicitor. A solicitor can do a proper witness statement, which, which has a lot of um, weight with the council. Most of them are generally successful, as long as you've got enough evidence. Makes perfect sense. So it's really about doing your homework and getting as, as much paperwork in as possible, working with the right people in the right circumstances. Indeed. Yeah, that's correct. Of course, planning doesn't just go, doesn't revolve around converting C3 residential to C4 HMOs or, or sui generis yeah. HMOs as well. It can be a whole plethora of things. So you do work on, oh, I say, larger projects like land developments as well. That's, I can imagine that's a whole different ball game. It is. I mean, new, new build developments in urban areas, in rural areas are, are, are a whole different ball game. I mean. The first things first, you'd always meet with your client to get their expectations about what they want with this piece of land. I always do a quick feasibility study, just a bullet point thing, the pros and cons of a piece of land. But it's important to 
understand what the client wants with a building or with a piece of land and if they can they can achieve that so we do a feasibility study and a site appraisal so we look at things like um, its designation within the local plan is it allocated for a specific use such as residential employment industrial that kind of thing and then if it falls within the correct use class then we can look at embarking on perhaps a pre-application inquiry and meeting with the council these are actively encouraged throughout the UK. Now, I generally don't embark on a major project without negotiating and sitting down with the council. It is a fee. There is a fee charged. It's not set by central government. It's set by the local authority, so they do vary widely throughout the UK. Um, but it gives people like investors that security moving forward to the next stage where you would introduce architects and all the third-party consultants when the fees raise. So essentially you'd be sat down with your client in front of the planning officer, an urban design officer, a highway officer, and say this is what we want to do and let's discuss what we need to do and whether you would support it. And, and the benefits from that are, are massive and it gives them a financial security for clients and it also lessens any risk of a, a refused application further down the line. Many people I speak to mention that they can do things via permitted development so uh, yeah. again for the purpose of anyone that's thinking of undertaking such projects and so forth can you go through the differences between effectively planning and then permitted development yeah i mean for, for investors particularly who'll be listening to this uh, they may or may not be aware but to to introduce activity shall we say um in in the economy the government introduced guidelines for allowing certain buildings to be changed without the need for uh, planning permission, whereas once upon a time most things needed permission. So for instance, you can get a, a block of offices and change them to residential accommodation without the need for planning permission, without the need for complying with space standards. As long as you're not making um, external changes, um, that would change the appearance of the building, that would mean you would need planning permission. But permitted development, the council would want to see a basic plan of what you're doing. They would also want to see some other basic information as well, perhaps a flood risk assessment, a basic highway statement, that kind of thing. Um, but there are lots of other things you can do. If you're looking in rural areas, for instance, the government have increased limits of converting agricultural buildings to dwellings, um, to something like about a thousand square metres, which is huge. You can get four dwellings in a, in a single agricultural building. So there's, there's lots to consider. This just doesn't apply to resi. If you're looking at investing in other things, you can change things for temporary permissions to A3 uses for two years, for instance. And it's like A3 covers? Restaurants, okay. cafes, that kind of thing. So it's all to stimulate the economy, um, etc. But PD doesn't apply to things like listed buildings. They're covered separately. Um, so you would, you would always need to apply for at least listed building consent for changes. And you mentioned earlier on that the government are always changing, mm. changing the rules or trying to inf yeah. influence different things. I think something that happened a little while ago was the permitted development of light industrial, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. uh, as well. So do you know of any other changes that might be coming up that government might be looking to introduce or is it all quite there's, on the way? Yeah, there's nothing in the offing at, at present. Um, the new MPPF, the National Planning Policy Framework, was probably the biggest change that the government have done in recent times. Um, that was initially uh, introduced in 2012. Um, it got revised in July 18. And that, that's the government's guidance. It's not planning policy, it's just a very um, specific document how they want to improve things like town centres, housing, the rural economy, green belt, um, historical buildings, that kind of thing. It's a very much a bullet point exercise. Um, but we do have to look at that in assessing planning applications as well as policies in the local plan. In terms of the local plan, so for argument's sake, let's say we've identified a plot of land, you've looked at the local plan, so I'm an investor, I come to you and say, hey John, let's have a look at this, I've got this plot of land here. So you look at the plot of land, you look at the local area plan. Now if the local area plan says, I don't know, it's earmarked for a block of 30 flats, mm -hmm. does that Although it's in the local plan, does that then pretty much guarantee if you were to put that in, you were to get that, or can you make changes or possibly even look to change the use of it depending on the area? You can. Um, yeah, I mean, for instance, in a local plan, there will be certain sites that are allocated for housing. Let's use housing, for instance. 
um, across the city. And those sites will have been assessed already by the council's planning policy department. So if you're purchasing a site, which we call in planning terms an allocated site, then it's more or less a given that you're going to get housing. And within that allocated site, the council will have some kind of documentation on what they would want to see on there in terms of density, in terms of housing type, um, that kind of thing. But it doesn't mean that you can't always get different uses. I did a job for a client in Lincolnshire about two years ago um, on an industrial site in a town called Spilsby. And it had been long-standing industrial, but it had never been used for anything. It had been allocated, but no one's ever bought it and built on it or anything. And everyone said, you wouldn't be able to get residential on there. So I looked at the history of the site. Uh, it had been actively marketed. There'd been no vested interest. So we put a really strong argument together to present to the council saying, well, you're allocating this site. You're precious about it being industrial, but it's been vacant for at least 10 years. You've got houses either side. It makes common sense to use it for housing. And they saw that approach and thought, yeah, you are right. And now the, the on-site building. That's a great example of how a planning consultant such as yourself can add an extreme amount of value, not just to your clients and to the council, but to, to the local area in general. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, we, we do lots of vacant buildings as well um, that are potentially in commercial and industrial areas, things like pubs and, and so on. They've been run down for, for a long time. There's maybe no other viable use apart from flats or HMO, um, but it's, it's using a planning consultant to, to sell that to the council. Um, as to why that is the most appropriate use. So we just got consent on a locally listed building in Hull. It's been actively marketed for the best part of two and a half years. Um, no one's shown any interest in it because it's locally listed. Um, and there's no other viable use for it. So we just got permission for a 12-bed HMO within that building. And we went to planning committee, told them what we were trying to achieve, why we were trying to do it. And they understood our ethos behind the project and they fully welcomed it and it got supported unanimously. Do you find that there's councils, um, obviously you don't have to name councils, of course. I'll happily name them, Rob. <laughs> hey, fair enough, we're all for sharing information here. Do you find that there's certain councils up and down the country that mm. it doesn't matter how much sort of common sense you, you might show them in projects, yeah. they still go, no, 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 no. Yeah, there are some authorities. I mean, for instance, across the Humber Bridge on the South Bank, North Lincolnshire Council, I'll talk about the good councils, I won't name the bad ones, I won't shame them. But North Lincolnshire Council, a really small local authority, but they're really open, they're really open-minded um, to, to looking at new things on new sites. And it's, North Lincolnshire Council, while we're on it and just deviating, is a really good example because each local authority in the United Kingdom has to have a five-year housing supply of land. Most of them do, but some don't. And North Lincolnshire doesn't. And I'm sending a lot of investors over there. The reason being is because they're housing requirement land supplies at 3.9 years, which in planning terms is chronically low. So they're opening up sites on the edges of villages and edges of towns, which would normally not get planning, but they're open to them. And that is a really, really interesting thing because if you come to us and say, we've seen this site on an edge of a settlement, you generally wouldn't get it unless it was 100% affordable housing. But in North Lincolnshire, you can get really big housing developments. The land's cheap, the returns are excellent, and it's great for commuting as well. In terms of having land around villages, mm. and again, people might be familiar with it, they might not be familiar with it. You hear the terms green belt and I think brown belt bandaged around quite yeah. a lot. What are they and what are the differences? I mean, let's, Brownfield is, yeah, yeah, Brownfield is, it covers a, a wide range of things. Brownfield sites, it's essentially previously developed land. So it could be an empty building. It could be something that's had something demolished on it. But also we're finding more and more now that councils are looking at things like paddocks and things like that and saying, well, yeah, they've had a use on them. It may not be a building that's been leveled. It may be green, but it's not used for something like um, agriculture, which councils are precious about. Greenfield is, you'll see the programmes on television, people are very precious about greenfield sites. It's not to say you can't build on them, but it is very difficult and it is time consuming and it's expensive. You can get sites, um, affordable schemes, very much on edges of settlements, edges of villages, edges of small towns, but the returns and things aren't particularly good. So it's always best to look at brownfield sites, but also if you, if you 
driving through a town, a village, a city centre, and you see something, and you think, we could do something with that, speak to a planning consultant, and they'd be able to get the most out of that for you. They'll be able to think of something different. We, we found there was, in Hull there was a, an old music hall on a, on a street. It wasn't locally listed, but people didn't touch it. We investigated it. Had no historical um, interest or anything like that. And it got leveled and we managed to get quite a number of apartments on it for somebody just because they engaged with the planning consultant. That's incredible. So it just proves to show that regardless of what people think, what people's preconceptions are, effectively where there's a will, there's a way. Indeed, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think it's important. We, we always do for clients a five minute quick bullet point feasibility. I'll tell clients how it is. I'll tell them if the site is feasible for what they want, let's look into it a bit further. If it's not, just let's move on. Just that should be straightforward, straightforward business. That, that, yep. that way you're not wasting your time and the clients aren't gonna waste their time pursuing things that may probably not happen. Absolutely, yeah. Which is good. In terms of land development then, um, two things on it. Number one, strikes to me is that it doesn't really matter what government are in charge, that they can set whatever housing policies or whatever it is that they want to set. And having gone through the planning process myself, and obviously not as much as you, mm. do you almost feel sorry for whatever government's setting all these policies? Because when you get to the planning and you deal with some of the planners, they're effectively like they're like dinosaurs. They are. Some authorities, um, local authorities up and down the country, are absolutely fantastic. I can't praise them enough. They'll engage, um, but some authorities are stuck in a rut. Some authorities you can't even speak to a planning officer. And if you do email them, they get 48 hours to respond to you. How are you supposed to do a development like that? How are you supposed to move on? I'm very fortunate that the councils that surround where I work in this part of the world, they're very good. There's generally an open door policy where you can sit down and speak to someone and they will listen to what you've got to do. But there are some authorities that are very precious and they, they have that power trip. And whatever national government is, is setting, for, for housing standards, <coughs> especially housing development throughout the country, um, they're not really interested, which is quite sad. Well, yeah, definitely, considering we've got a, almost like a chronic shortage of, of housing supply in comparison to where demand is. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what does put off a lot of developers um, with new housing schemes is the provision of affordable housing. Um, that can make or break some developments, but getting a planning consultant on board, we can negotiate affordable housing provision, and we can also negotiate contributions as well, either by a SIL or Section 106 agreements, because again, they're set by the local authority. Some of those contributions can really crush a development because they are so big. Uh, an example is I got consent for a 50 house scheme um, about 20 miles from here and the contributions were half a million pounds Ooh, wow! and the, including the demolition costs and remediation uh, because there was some slight contamination on the site the site's empty um, so we're in negotiations now with the local authority to try and reass reassess these contributions um, it's also important as well with regards to house building and conversions for, for investors that within city centres Sometimes there's no SIL contributions whatsoever. A SIL meaning community infrastructure levy. Exactly, yeah. Um, which are your contributions to, to the local authority. The reason being is that local authorities throughout the country are actively promoting city centre living and to encourage that they're not wanting to put off developers. Um, so that's something which people like architects may not know, but we're very much at the forefront of what contributions you would pay dependent on where your site is essentially. So if we use Hull as an example, as you move out of Hull, city centre, your contributions are getting higher because it tends to be a little bit more attractive where you're going to live. But the city centre at the minute, whereas Hull City Council are trying to encourage um, the, the reuse of old buildings, uh, above shops, above bars, etc., they're not asking for any contributions whatsoever, which is really attractive to investors. Hence the reason um, why we're getting a lot of people looking at Hull that's just starting its upward trajectory. Oh yeah, I mean, there is so much for me. I've been up here for a couple of years and to see the transform. I mean, even where we're sat now, re yeah. recording this is, is Yeah, I mean, where we're sat now, 
we're looking out onto a, a dry dock of a, of a of, of, of the old um, docks in Hull. There's an amphitheatre outside, you know, C4DI where I'm based is, is the tech hub of the north. It's the investment that's pouring into this, this city is just unparalleled and people are looking at other cities in the north and finding Hull much more attractive. Ten years ago, this wouldn't have been the case. No, about a shadow of doubt, the amount of things that have gone on here, it's been yeah. absolutely incredible. I mean, we can look in the distance there, there's... Apologies on the podcast, by the way, I know this, uh, <laughs> I know this is an audio thing, but yeah, sorry, John. I mean, there's ten, there's 10 wind turbines being built at Siemens in the distance. Um, lots and lots of employment there. They need places to live. HMOs, flats, they all want somewhere. The chemical works, things like that. Arco, um, who are building a 500 capacity office block, 200 meters to our left. Those people want somewhere to live in the city center. There's lots of old buildings that are ripe for conversion in Hull. Yeah, well, without a shadow of a doubt. And that's, it's just about knowing, it's just about knowing your area as well. I mean, that's from an investor point of view. Yeah. Once they get to know the area, uh, and it, again, if it's a strategy that they're looking to, you know, pursue, etc., then again, having someone like yourself on board that knows the area and then the technicalities even better. Yeah. It's just going to be advantageous. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I work throughout the country on on projects, and you know, obviously this this is primarily focused on on residential, um, but immersing yourself in a particular area, knowing the the positives and pitfalls pluses and negatives is, is very very important i think and um and i think investors see a lot of benefit in speaking to someone like myself who can give them that quick fire answer without having to fudge around for, for answers and solutions just come to someone like myself who, who's au fait with it as well how do you manage to keep on top of the various local area plans because again you're up and down the country as you yeah, say yeah, yeah. how do you keep on top of it everything like that um a lot of local plans and things they, they generally come about every 15 years so it's not something that changes that often um, there are councils that when they go through the transition from an old local plan to a new local plan um, that can be a bit of a, um, a point where a developer could get excited the reason being is because, for instance, York City Council are transitioning from an old local plan to a new local plan, and some of the old policies lose their weight, and the newer policies aren't established. So there's this kind of void in things, and that's when investors can strike, because the old policies have been slowly deleted, the new policies aren't implemented. So there's this kind of lull in activity. So it's something to, to think about. But local plans, um, yeah, every 15 years generally. So it's, it's not something massively difficult to keep on top of. But there are little changes like we touched upon before, like permitted development. The government are always looking at extending, changing, tinkering, things like that. So I constantly get emailed updates from various um, different organisations telling me about what's going on and, and I can pass them on to, to clients. Going back to governments and, and uh, for example, affordable housing. So with, with affordable housing on different sites, you were talking about earlier on, is there any set guidelines on affordable housing from the government and then the councils kind of make up their mind as they go along? Yeah, it's generally speaking, it's the, the local authorities determine how much they need. So for instance, if you've got an urban area, let's use, I don't know, Leeds or Manchester as an example, you'll have a high proliferation of ex-local authority housing stock their affordable provision won't be massive. However, if you've got a big rural authority where there isn't that much affordable housing, then they would ask for potentially bigger contributions. So for instance, in the East Riding of Yorkshire Council, they can ask anything from between 10 to 20, 25% affordable provision, which is, is quite excessive. And again, it can, it can make or break some developments. Um, the lower contributions, are in towns such as Goole, such as Withensee, which have more affordable housing stock already in place, so there's no need for any more. Do you find from your <coughs> experience then that the, I'm not going to say the greed of the local authorities, probably not the best way to put it, but the requirements of such things, such as affordable housing and seal and section 106, because mm. there's quite a reliance on that, that do you find a lot of deals are make or break because of those exact factors? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, 
it's a really good question, Bob. I mean, we've just had a scheme for an apartment block um, containing 14 apartments on a really narrow site. And because we've, we're quite short of car parking, the council have asked us to lose some units, which we did. Um, but now they're, they're asking for, for big contributions. And because we've had to offset the loss of, I think it's three apartments, but they're still asking for pretty much the same contribution, the viability of the project is now in doubt. So we've had to produce a viability statement looking at the cost of the land, the cost of the build, the cost of these contributions in terms of what the net gain would be. And now it's, it, the, the margins are incredibly small um, and the, the site may well remain undeveloped like it has been for the best part of God, 15 years. Yeah, I think I know that. Obviously, without mentioning names, I think yeah. I know the one. I think I know the one you're on about. It's. So did you find then, certainly from my experience in, in in dealing with various bits and pieces, that if I find that a lot of people in the council are not. I say that, and I don't mean well. Okay, because it sounds like I'm just going to start banishing everyone negatively that works in council. If that's not the case, but do you find that because they're mainly public sector, they're not really looking at it from a, a business perspective. That 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 is what's stopping more, even more houses being built. Rob, that you've hit the nail on the head. Local authority offices. I was probably a square peg in a round hole because I understood the commercial aspects and the economic aspects of a development. They don't, unfortunately. Not all of them. Some of them do. They understand it because they maybe worked in the private sector and have gone back to the public sector. But the large percentage of, of, of local authority planners don't get the economics of it at all. They see a local plan, they see a policy, there's no deviation or or just using their discretion in any way, shape or form. It's done by the book and it's like, well, would you rather see a vacant building, a vacant piece of land than see it developed? And that's why I'm quite lucky why I work in this particular part of, of the country in the North East. Generally speaking, most authorities have an open door and they will look at that aspect because they are seeking inward investment. But believe you me, some of the authorities are very, very archaic in their approach. And then people wonder why stuff doesn't get built. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Why there's an, an absence of, of development. I mean, Hull you know, is an industrial city, but the amount of development taking place here and, and the council are so forward thinking, they're producing documents, master plans, in, you know, they, they want, they've got a massive rege regeneration team. They're wanting development, they're wanting investment. Some local authorities just uh, are 20 years behind this. They don't have any strategies in place. Why would you want to invest somewhere which isn't looking to the future? They're not looking at 10, 20, 30 years down the line. Um, whereas somewhere like Hull, it, it, it's so refreshing and it's easy, Rob, it's easy here. It's good to know for anyone that's looking to invest in Hull that mm. might be looking to do these sort of projects, or even if you're not investing in Hull, to be fair, because yeah, yeah. you work nationwide, it's, it's having that plethora of knowledge from those years of experience that really makes you stand out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, some of the newer authorities that I've worked with up and down the country, I, I found the, the same approach. It's, it's been refreshing. But again, like we said before, some of them, and investors probably from London will understand that the London boroughs are particularly difficult. Um, constant changes of staffing, uh, massive workload, things like that, that's difficult. But if you get a good relationship, a good rapport with the planning department, with the planners, planning shouldn't be difficult. It should be easy. We want development, we need development, we need thriving towns, city centres, etc. Why should it be difficult? Well, that's an even better question than the ones I think <laughs> I've given you. Why, why, well, yeah, why? Really, I I don't know. I, I, find, I just find it quite interesting that it's, um, there's so many there's so many sort of ifs and, and what's and, and maybes and like I said, it seems to you know not matter who's you know in charge of sort of central government. That probably at the end of the day, thinking about it, probably it's a people business. And if you can strike the right relationships with the right people in the right departments, mm. then that's going to make life easier without a shadow of a doubt. It is. It is, and I think. When you have that relationship, it, it does make the process a lot easier. You find some people, developers and investors and architects, there's this us and them attitude, but why? You, you were all there to, to reach a common good, build relationships, and that has so much good faith. I know when I worked in the public sector, um, we, we 
always tried to build relationships. I was always taught at university to look for solutions if there are problems. But like we said, some authorities look for the negatives. You know, that is just the way of the world, I'm afraid. And it's about working with them to sort of put, put your own spin on it and say, well, hang, hang on a minute, they ask you, this is common sense. Yeah. Or this is why this shouldn't be done. This is why that should be done, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I think, and I think local authorities are, these are changing times. You know, we, we, we're all aware of that. And I think local authorities, you know, most of them, not all, but they're, they're, they're coming round to that way of, of, of thinking a more commonsensical approach to things now, definitely. No, that's good. Well, one more question, then we'll do a, we'll do a quick, fast sort of yeah, yeah. wrap up. A lot of people won't be under the illusion that, you know, sort of land development and the planning process can be quite time consuming. It's not a quick sort of get rich quick strategy in property. Yeah. If people are coming to you with land that they want to build dwellings on, etc., is there a rough sort of timeline for, for that process, assuming it goes well first time? Yeah, I mean, planning generally takes eight weeks for, for a standard application, no more than eight weeks, unless you've hit some snags or you're changing things. If that is the case, then the council have to ask for an extension of time. If your application has gone beyond eight weeks, they've not asked for an extension of time, then you do have the right to appeal for non-determination. It's not something widely used, and again, it adds more time to, to your process. Other applications in the, in the majors category can take eight to 13 weeks. They tend to be big residential schemes, infrastructure projects, things like that. But generally speaking, once your planning application is submitted, from that date, it's generally two months. What if planning then gets rejected? What's the process? If planning gets rejected, there's a number of options. We can go back to the council and negotiate and see what the problems were, see if we can overcome them, see if we can maybe water down the application. However, if the client has um, a set goal with a particular project and they need to get a certain amount of return from it, then obviously we have the, the, the appeals process and that is a, is a totally different ball game. And if you are unfamiliar with the, the planning appeals process, essentially a planning consultant would write a detailed assessment on why we believe the scheme is suitable, how it complies with local policies, national guidance, etc. And we present that to the planning inspector and the local council. And the planning inspector are a government body based in Bristol. Once it gets submitted, um, there's an exchange of communication then after, generally after a few months we get a site visit date, the planning inspector will come and look at the site, there's no negotiation, there's no discussion on the day, he or she will look at the site, the surrounding area and make their own decision and then about generally two weeks to a month after that we'll get a detailed report with their decision. The planning appeals process is there for a reason, it forms probably 40% of my work, it's not guaranteed and I never tell clients that it is. I'll embark on a lot of appeals where I'm brought into a, a scheme which I've had no involvement with from day one. I don't always take appeals on, Rob, because I don't. If, if something I don't believe in, or I think the council are justified in making that decision, then I'll tell the client to look at, at adjusting that application. But obviously, if things are successful, then um, it's, it's happy days for the client. And I think it's important to, to emphasise as well that. Me as a planning consultant and as investors who are looking at HMOs and flats, we've had an awful lot of success with local authorities who've refused applications on absence of car parking. Some are very, very precious, but as investors will know, people who live in a HMO probably will rather have a bike. They'll use public transport, they don't need a car. So we throw all the sustainability credentials of a site to the planning inspectorate. And this isn't a lie that I'm telling everybody, but we've not lost an appeal on those grounds yet because the inspector has said well you're close to shops you're close to employment you're close to bus transport you've got the cycle parking provision and councils need to stop being archaic and precious about car parking we're trying to encourage sustainable transport for a better environment the planning inspector see that but a lot of local authorities don't see that and i think it's important that if you do have, have a scheme that you've got knocked back for that reason don't immediately dismiss it and walk away. Think about appealing. We put you know, a 30, 40 page appeal statement purely on sustainability. The council probably they don't have the time or the resources to do that. They're not adding enough weight. They're just saying there's not enough car parking for these number of people. That's all they say. So we can throw everything at it. And the inspector says, well, where's your evidence, council? They don't have any evidence. 
It's just there's a shortfall of parking. Do you think that's down to the fact that councils or authorities might, <clears throat> when they're looking at these things, are just looking at at it from a sort of a black and white perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Rather than a level of common sense as such. Yeah, yeah. It's again going back to, to local plans. They'll see a local plan. They'll go to the appendix of the local plan. They'll look at the car parking standards. Oh, you've not got enough car parking. We'll refuse it on that. But we we've the count the inspectors have really gone to town on some authorities. They've said, yeah, okay, there is a shortfall of parking, but I'm looking at the the surrounding area. There's no indiscriminate parking. Cars aren't parked up verges. They're not all parked on double yellow lines. They're not obstructing disabled crossings or anything like that. And look at where you are. You're within close proximity to a local centre, a district centre, a neighbourhood centre, with all your shops, employment, your doctors, your surgeries, your hairdressers, everything that you can think of. And the planning inspectorate are being told from central government, that's what you need to look at. But councils are sticking to their local plan. Why do you think there is that level of um, rigidity? Is that, did I even say that right? Rigidity, is that even a word? Yeah, it is. It is okay, a word. Okay, I, 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 yeah, I use it sometimes. But I think the London boroughs, in their defence, are more flexible because they, they, they want to move away from a reliance on car transport. And, and they're in whole... In this year's coming budget, they're investing, I think, £1.5 to £2 million in cycle lanes and, and dedicated to that. So hopefully there'll be a little bit of a softening um, of approach. But I think, yeah, it's just that, that preciousness. They've had a local plan. It's been approved. Let's just stick to it. So Sadly. In, so, so in, <coughs> in theory, if, if people were able to just apply a little bit more sort of common sense and try and see not just black and white but almost like the sort of grey areas and come to these sort of agreements by working with each other then the planning process could be much more efficient sometimes than it already is. Yeah I think you're, you're right Rob I think it, it just needs that that common sense approach from everybody to, to look at it and these particular authorities where we've won appeals they're still refusing applications on the same grounds. Crazy times. Some things will never get our heads around <coughs> I'll, I'll be honest but Quick five questions, giving, uh, I, I will apologise in advance for some of these questions. They're um, not exactly great questions, but they always prompt fantastic answers. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Well, I, I mentioned this to you the other week when we met. I've got a client, probably about 80 years old. He owns a skip company. He wears a flat cap, rattles his change in his pocket, pencil in his ear, cigarette in the other ear. And he's been there, he's seen it, he's done it, he's got the t-shirt. And he says, John, I'll give you one piece of advice. It'll take you five years to build your business, but it'll take you five minutes to have it destroyed. He said, just be honest, truthful, and just do a decent job. So that's all people want, he said. So I often call in for a coffee just to get the wise words <laughs> of Bernard. Um, but he's, he's, like I said, he's, he, he, he works, he, he's just, he works in skips, in the waste industry, so he's seen everything and he's a fountain of knowledge and I like that. And I like listening to people, older people especially, who've got that life experience and you know, a lot of people who, who think they're it, should we say. Mm. I, I, I give people like that all my time. On the flip side, what is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Mm, the worst piece of advice? <sighs> Unfortunately, it came from an architect um, who, when I started out on my own, he, it was to do with money, essentially, and I'm not gonna go into it, but he said you could do this and you could get more money out of something, out of someone, and it was a religious institution. And he said, well, we can charge them this, but when we've come to do it, we'll charge them a bit more. And I walked away, he's lost his client, he's lost his face, and he doesn't get many jobs now. And I'm not about that um, conning people, tricking people, defrauding people. It was always how to get more money out of people because you're in this sector, you've done a certain piece of work, you can charge a bit more, etc. I charge a fee. If it means me doing more than that, that's my problem. But in this sector, no, it wasn't for me. It left a bitter taste in my mouth, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I think if I was in your shoes, I'll be thinking and saying the exact same thing. Yeah. Why is it important to have a network? I have a, a really, really tight network of people that I work with. And I think that the, the key word is trust. 
Um, it's, it's having those people who you can trust, who you believe in, who you can work with, who are honest, reliable, etc. Um, you see all these people, I mean, I'll give you an example. A friend of mine's got 5,000 friends on Facebook. I don't know about you, Rob, but I don't have 5,000 friends. Um, so I think it's, you, you need that tightness. Um, and it's just, a, in, in business sense, it's just getting things done easy. Um, and, and like I say, I work with my core team of architects, my core team of consultants, and I think it's just, it's just doing that and you can turn projects around very quickly and efficiently without any hassle of bringing other people on board. Good stuff, and last one to wrap up. What one piece of advice would you give to someone that is in limbo over making a decision? <laughs> um, just, just do it, do it, do it, do it. I, I dilly-dallied for years about work and things, and I thought, shall I do it, shan't I do it? What, what? It was the what if, the what if situation. And I just think if you, if you didn't do it, you will never know the outcome. It may succeed, it may not. I don't know, but I think now I've learned that what can happen and what some situations my friends are like who are still back in local authority and what I'm doing now, I didn't think three years ago I'd be sat here doing a podcast with you talking about property and working on fantastic projects with fantastic people up and down the country. You know, it's been hard. You know, you know yourself, starting from a certain point to where you are now. In, in a lot of you things in your life and in my life as well, not just in work, but you know, I've never been happier. So just, just do it, have a go. Totally agree with that 100%, just do it. Nike it as well, or Nike, Nike it, just, just do it 100%. That's, that was a question that you said, what is your message to the world? And on the back here, I've got Nike says, just do it. Even better, that's two questions in one, <laughs> then one answer in two questions. Uh, but John, it's been absolutely fantastic. I think really, really, really informative. A lot of fantastic content there for people so. that, that are listening. In terms of people that might be looking for developments or not, sorry, looking to work with planning consultants, mm. how do people get hold of you should they want to speak to you? If they want to speak to me, got my website, there's an email link, my phone number, everything's on there. I work up and down the country from where I am in Hull, down to the capital, down to the south coast, we're even doing stuff in the Isle of Skye. <laughs> so wherever you are, location isn't a problem. I'm not just geographically stuck to, to where I am. Um, and I'll help you in, in any way, shape or form. And the website is? BensonPlanningStudio.co.uk. Fantastic, we'll put a link on the show notes. So if you want to contact John, uh, can I get hold of you on social medias at all? You can, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. As John Benson or Benson Planning Studio? Uh, Benson Planning Studio and LinkedIn is just me, John Benson. Fantastic, well, go and hunt John down. Highly recommended. We've done some work previously and um, I, so I couldn't recommend John more for his professionalism and his services. But, uh, John, thank you very much for your time. No problem. And look forward to hearing from everybody.